If you have a Bible, you can open it to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. And as you open there, I have a question for you. And that is, does your theology of grace move you to press on? Does your theology of grace move you to press on? These two verses that we will read at the end of Hebrews 13 is a benediction. It's a good word at the end of a very rich theological letter. It's a closing statement, as it were. And the author of this letter, steeped in the Old Testament theology of grace, shows its covenant confirmation in order to push his hearers to press on. Young ones, you young disciples, as you listen along here, these are just a few short verses. Listen carefully and see if you can answer this question too. Why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? In just a few short weeks, we'll be observing and celebrating that resurrection more particularly, but we always should be aware of and thinking of it. Why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may this God equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that You would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together to be pleasing in Your sight. In Jesus' name and for His sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Through 86 years, they never wanted to quit. At least that's what they say. And I think that I believe them and will give them any benefit of that doubt. Through 86 years of marriage, Herbert and Zelmyra Fisher of Craven County, North Carolina, were married on May 13, 1924. And at the time of his death, just last year, they were the oldest known living married couple on earth, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. 86 years. He was 105 years old at his death. She is 103. 86 years of marriage. On Valentine's Day, on that occasion just a year ago, some supposedly, evidently younger and more technologically savvy friends set them up with a Twitter account so that the Fishers could tweet their marriage advice of almost a century of experience to a listening world. And Zelmyra's advice was this. 
She said, when he was younger, he wasn't much to look at. But he was sweet, and we decided from early on that marriage was not a contest, and so we would not keep score with one another, and so divorce would not be an option. So, through nine decades of marriage, they carried that advice. Through five children, ten grandchildren, nine great-grandchildren, and at least now, one great-great-grandchild, through 15 White House administrations, through the Great Depression, the Civil Rights Movement, the rise and fall of both Elvis and the Beatles, and through five wars, they never wanted to quit. And that's remarkable. That's astonishing, really, if you think of it, because... It's so tempting to quit. It's so easy to quit nowadays. Our culture offers us all kinds of reasons to quit, and not just to quit a marriage, not just to quit a job or a city, and not just to quit friendships or uh, parenting or to quit parents, not just to quit any of those things. All of those things can be hard in their own right, But due to circumstances, right down to the core of who you are, when's the last time that you just wanted to quit believing the gospel? The Hebrews were ready to quit. It's why this letter was written. This was the purpose of this amazingly theological letter written by an unknown author. Some in early Centuries of the church assumed it must have been the Apostle Paul, and he surely would have been well-equipped to write a letter like this with his Old Testament theology of grace and his New Testament application of that as the covenant progressed in God's redemption. But we don't really know who wrote this letter. It's much different than Paul's other letters, and so perhaps he did not. It doesn't really matter. The person who penned the letter, the point is, God wrote this letter to the Hebrew Christians, most likely in Rome, because of the conflicts that they faced. They faced constant conflicts with the Jewish community, which they had separated from, in a sense, believing that Jesus was the Messiah that their scriptures called for. But even more so with the Roman authorities, they faced immense conflicts and pressures. They lived in a day when you could be persecuted easily, and even killed, certainly, just for being a Christian. And that, we all ought to agree, is a disincentive to persevering, one that we don't really know well ourselves today, at least in our place where we live. And those disincentives caused some to doubt. It caused some to leave. It caused some to just quit believing the gospel. And so this theologian, this pastor took up his quill and his parchment and began to write what, in his terms, is just a brief letter. I imagine if any of us took up a pen to write a letter like this as long as it is, we wouldn't call it brief because it's not just brief in words. It is heavy in theology. There's much here. But this brief letter to exhort them to look to Jesus and persevere, press on, Keep your eyes on Jesus, he wrote to them. 
not on your problems, but on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus because He's greater than the angels. Those heavenly beings that you expect are so much better equipped than you are to persevere. Keep your eyes on Jesus because He's greater than Moses, even. Your Old Testament hero of faithful obedience. Keep your eyes on Jesus because He's greater than the high priest, that ancient mediator who sought the pleasure of God on behalf of the people. Keep your eyes on Jesus, whose resurrection confirmed the covenant that God had promised from the very beginning and press on. And how are you to press on? You're to do it by a theology of grace. A theology of grace that includes receiving God's equipping. May this God, who confirmed His covenant by raising Jesus from the dead, may this God equip you with everything good. Equipment is crucial. We all know that and we experience it to greater degrees in different circumstances, I imagine. I saw not too long ago a a very short documentary on hazardous jobs, those jobs that very few people want to do and most people just take for granted because we don't even know that they need to be done. One of those jobs is found at the top of broadcasting transmission towers. At the top of these towers, there is a spotlight beacon to warn off aircraft because the top of these towers is 1,768 feet above the planes below. Somebody has to change that light bulb when it burns out. And a ladder won't do it. After an elevator ride some 1,600 feet up through the middle of the shaft, a technician and his partner climb out of the elevator, and they have to mostly free climb the remaining almost 200 feet to the top of this tower. Once they get there, they can see some 50 miles all around. And as they climb, they are pulling behind them, hooked on their belt, a rope about 10 feet long. And at the bottom of that rope hangs a 30-pound bag of equipment, tools that they have to have when they get to the top of that tower. And once they're there, if a storm cloud comes, there's no quick way down. You better have the right equipment. Once you get there, you better have the right tools. A theology of grace gives to you the right tools, the right equipment for doing the job that God calls you to do. God himself will equip you both with theological equipment and practical equipment. The theological equipment here is, I think, simply in knowing God. The writer of this letter helps his readers to know God in a way that maybe they hadn't seen in the Old Testament Scriptures. And he begins his letter like this. He says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. In other words, he says to them, If you want to know God, then look at His Son. If you want to know God, then put your eyes on Jesus. You know, we all in 
making our way through the world daily, even here or at work or at home, we all run into people of all different types and people come in every variety imaginable. We're all uniquely different and yet there are categories into which we all inevitably fall to some degree or another. And two of those categories categories are these. Some people that you know and meet naturally show strength. They are strong people. Whatever element in them makes them to be that way, they're strong. Other people are naturally sympathetic. Maybe even empathetic if they've had the same experiences as you have. But if not, that doesn't deter them at all from showing sympathy to you. That's just the natural way that God has made them to be. Some people are strong. Some people are sympathetic. We all fall into one of those categories to some degree or another. In the Christian life, we all have to recognize that the strong ones are called to grow in their sympathy. The sympathetic ones are called to grow in their strength. But one comes more naturally to us than another. Jesus embodied both. And the writer tells us that. He wants us to understand that so that we can know God and be equipped theologically for the life of grace that He calls us to. Jesus embodies both because He's greater than, He's stronger than the angels. That's what the writer tells us in chapter 1. He says, About the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, will last forever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Now, to which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There are legions of angels. Legions. But there's only one God. And only one Son of God who is the embodiment of strength itself from God Himself stronger than the angels. Of what angel did you ever say this? None. Because there's only one strong Son of God. But He's more than that. He also embodies sympathy. And the writer wants us to see that in chapter 2. He says, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, interpreting Psalm 8 to understand Jesus. We see Him now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. And to explain that, He then writes this, Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by His death He might destroy the one who holds the power of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear. Your God is not far off. He has come close to you in strength and in empathy. The theological equipment of knowing Him quickly becomes practical as God says to you, I understand. I understand. The gospel is that God does not stand on high pointing a bony finger in your face and showing you your failures. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that rather he comes alongside with both strength and empathy. And he says to you, I understand the weight of sin that you carry. I've felt it. 
I understand the strength of temptation that you face. I've seen it. And I understand the temptation that you feel to quit. I've been there too. But my grace is help for you in your time of need. Abraham quit. Abraham quit waiting for that promised heir, seeking instead to produce that heir on his own with a servant, only for God to confirm his covenant with a miracle child. Moses quit. Moses quit leading the Israelites, striking the rock in his self-righteous, frustrated anger. He took it upon himself and he quit, only for God to confirm his covenant with a real promised land. David quit. David quit honoring the throne that God had given to him, giving in to the lust of his eyes and taking things into his own hands. David quit only for God to confirm his covenant with David. Generations later, with a carpenter king. And at every moment you've ever wanted to quit believing the gospel, God, by raising Jesus from the dead, has confirmed his covenant to redeem you and your whole being. May God equip you with everything good, knowing him in his strength and his sympathy and believing that he understands every temptation you see Because that good equipment serves a purpose. He's giving you the tools with which to press on. But he's also giving you the path on which to do it. Because a theology of grace includes as well doing God's will. May this God, this one who confirmed his covenant by raising Jesus from the dead. May this God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Will. Now we have to recognize together that for many Christians, the very suggestion of that kind of raises the blood pressure a little bit, maybe even a lot. There's confusion and consternation, even sort of pressure. What does it mean to do God's will? If a theology of grace leads me to do God's will, I don't even know if I'm doing God's will now. What does that mean to do God's will? It means this. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Not on your problems, but on Jesus. Because not only is He greater than the angels, who may seem to be better equipped than you are to endure, He also is greater than Moses, the lawgiver, who seems better able to obey than you are. Of course, we know that's not what Scripture presents, isn't it? That's not what Scripture gives us about Moses. It's realistic. Just because he was Moses, Charlton Heston in the flesh, just because he was that doesn't make him any better able to obey, to do God's will than you or I. And that's this writer's point. He says this in chapter 3, Moses was faithful in all of God's house. And in chapter 11, by faith, Moses refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt. Oh, might that be said of me. I mean, here's a man who surely did God's will. No? Surely. And yet, you know Moses' story. By his own disobedience, he disqualified himself from entering into the promised land. And so the author writes this as well. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Moses didn't build the house. He was a stone in the wall, and he was great for the position that God gave to him in redemptive history. But Moses didn't build the house. The builder of the house is the great one. Moses' greatness was not in his strong leadership. Moses was one of those strong ones. Maybe he had a hard time showing sympathy. Moses' greatness was not in his strong leadership. It was not in his unrighteous anger either, for sure. Moses' greatness, rather, was in his faith-filled foresight. The writer tells us this, By faith, Moses left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. So who did Moses see? His eyes were not. His eyes were not on tablets of stone-carved law. Those were in his hands, but his eyes were on Jesus. His eyes were on the one who was invisible, whom he saw By faith, looking forward, keep your eyes on Jesus, not on your problems, but on Jesus. And the author tells us why again in chapter 10. He says, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And so I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. O God, and having done God's will, by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's an important verse. That one is not worth skipping over and dismissing at all. By one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By confirming His covenant in the resurrection of Jesus, God sees you as perfect forever. God sees you as perfect forever by faith. As Paul had written to these same Romans, he wrote, I received grace and apostleship to call people to the obedience that comes from faith. I heard a friend recently respond to a tough question with a very gracious and very beautiful answer. The question was, why would a stubborn sinner who loves his sin turn away from it, reject it, and throw it away? And the answer was this, Because he loves God more. 
when you are persuaded that one greater than Moses, who fulfilled all the righteousness that Moses required, has credited that righteousness to you and sees you as perfect forever, your love for him will overflow into the obedience that comes from faith. I knew a Presbyterian pastor in Seattle some years ago who told the story of a young man who showed up in his congregation, began to attend the church there for some time on his own. He was by himself, and he would sit in the congregation and listen intently to the gospel as it was being preached. And he evidently would would struggle in his soul. Physically, he could see the anguish and the emotion on his face and in his body language as he wrestled with evidently some guilt. The pastor began to meet with him and and to talk with him about his experiences and, and his interaction with the church and the gospel. And the young man explained to him that he was trapped in a particular sexual sin that had driven him into the darkest place that he could possibly imagine. And he could not get out, but he had come to listen to the gospel in this church. And he believed. He said, I believe what you're saying to me about the gospel. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that God sees me by faith as perfect forever. But I struggle with that. Help me in my unbelief. The man believed and continued to struggle. One night late, the pastor received a phone call from the young man. And the man said to him, I just want you to know that I'm about to go back to see my old friends. I'm about to go back to the lifestyle in which I've been trapped. I'm, I'm going out. I'm going back. The pastor said, okay. And the man said, aren't you going to tell me what to do? Aren't you going to tell me to stop? Aren't you going to tell me what I should do? And the pastor said, I'm not going to tell you what to do. But I will tell you this. By faith, you are as righteous as Christ. He hung up the phone and sometime later the young man came back to him and he said to the pastor, I didn't go. I stayed. After our phone conversation, I didn't go. I kept repeating that to myself. I am as righteous as Christ. I am as righteous as Christ. I am as righteous as Christ. And I didn't go. It wasn't the end of his struggle, but he won that battle by faith because by faith he is as righteous as Christ. Does your theology of grace move you to press on? Does it move you to press on? God will equip you for the obedience of faith. But that theology also leads to one more thing, and that is arresting, arresting in God's pleasure. May this God, he writes, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. I expect that my own children don't remember being instructed that blue is blue or yellow is yellow. They just know it. They know what they are. They've always known it because of the testimony that points them to it. 
And such is the normal Christian life that a baptized one should never not know the hues of grace before their eyes. God held their heart from the very beginning, making them by grace to be pleasing in His sight. The author assures us of this theologically, as he does every other thing in this letter, by showing that Jesus is not only greater than the angels or greater than Moses, but He's also greater than that high priest, that odd mediator in ancient days of the covenant. He writes this, Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us press on. That high priest, of course, was that odd character in Israelite society who had the distinctive job of taking the sacrifice into the temple, of actually going through the curtain through which everyone else was forbidden, to go through the curtain into the very presence of God himself, whose presence would have struck down dead anyone else in his presence, to take that sacrifice before God. And the work, the result of his work was to be a pleasing aroma before the Lord. Not that the aroma itself was pleasing, but that the heart behind it was to be. And it all foreshadowed Christ himself. Of course, it was all fulfilled in Christ. That's what this writer is telling us. He is that high priest. He didn't just pass through the curtain that was in the temple. He passed through the heavens themselves to go into the presence of God for real and stand there pleasing in the Father's presence. The writer refers again to the Psalms, drawing as he so often does from the Old Testament to persuade these Hebrews of the fulfillment of this covenant on which they stand. He says, With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased, O Lord. Quoting from the psalmist. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He was finished, his work was complete. He rested, and the Father was pleased. Martin Luther famously beat himself up. He beat himself up literally to beat the sin and the guilt and the shame out of his body because he saw the righteousness that God required, and the weight was so heavy that he beat himself up under it. Men and women, you and I beat ourselves up mentally, emotionally, spiritually, even, yes, physically. We beat ourselves up to beat the sin and the guilt out of us to the point of just wanting to 
quit because we see the righteousness that God requires. We know it's there. We know it in our hearts, the righteousness that God requires. But Jesus is greater than the high priest because He provides the righteousness that God requires. And the Father is pleased. A child is never more content than when he feels his parents' pleasure. We all know that. I asked our School of Life and Doctrine class a question last week. It was a simple question, but one that we all should ask ourselves daily. Are you struggling with your sin in order to be free from your guilt? Or are you free from your guilt to struggle with your sin? Are you struggling to be free? Or are you free to struggle? Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the high priest who sought to please God in His presence. He has finished that work. And the Father is pleased by faith with you forever. Does your theology of grace move you to press on? God has confirmed His covenant promise to redeem by raising Jesus from the dead. That covenant confirmation leaves you to receive God's good equipping, to do His will by faith, and to rest in His pleasure in you. Father, we pray that You would grant to us faith to see and believe Would you grant to us faith to turn our eyes to Jesus and believe again this gospel that you have granted to us in him? We pray, O Lord, that you would take our eyes off of our own problems and turn them back to your gospel so that we might recognize and believe that Jesus, your son, is greater than the angels, stronger and more sympathetic than we can imagine that He is greater than Moses, the one who obeyed your will, who did your will fully in body, that we might by faith. And He is greater than the high priest who sought to please you with sacrifices, and yet He, once He had presented His sacrifice, sat down, finished, because you, the Father, were pleased forever. We pray, O Lord, that you would turn our eyes to this Jesus, recognizing that in raising him from the dead, you have confirmed your covenant, that we, your children, might press on in your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.